0: we continue our one corinthians series last week what what we looked at was one of the many hobby horses of the church in corinth and that one the hobby horse from last week was they were obsessed with who is mature and who was immature in the church and paul was like oh my goodness this church is a handful and he and he basically said well if you really want to know a mature christian is one who, who humbly presses on towards christ and And is always drawing close to Christ and moving forward towards Christ. And you can do that from day one in your Christian life. And uh, that's really what it means to be a mature Christian. Uh, He said a lot of other things. But uh, now he goes on and deals with another one of their hobby horses. And then the hobby horse for today is... It seems to be that they're obsessed with the idea of being spiritual. They want to be spiritual. We want to be a spiritual church. And so Paul engages with their hobby horse and says, you know, okay, let's talk about what it means to be spiritual. Now, for them, being spiritual is to have status in the church. But the problem is, as with their case, with their understanding of being mature, it was all faulty. And one of the biggest problems that Paul could see was that he he was observing, you think of yourself as a spiritual church, but you're completely divided as a people you're divided over leaders. You're obsessing over, do I follow Paul? Do I follow Apollos? What team am I on? And so the, the foundation of this passage, or the, the, the beginning point of this passage, is this problem, this dilemma from Paul, which is you can't be spiritual and divided at the same time. The, the fact that you're divided indicates that you're not really a mature church that's walking in the Spirit. The problem was that the Corinthian church had the Spirit because they're Christians, but they were not acting spiritually. They were acting in an unspiritual way. They were fleshly in their behaviour. It's kind of a word that Paul uses, as if they didn't have the Spirit. He says in verse 3 that he can't even address them as people who live by the Spirit. Rather, he has to address them as worldly baby Christians. Ouch. And that will be hard for them to hear. Now, some of the Corinthian church don't even think Paul is spiritual. And they're the team of Apollos people. It's not Apollos' fault, mind you. But they don't know what they're talking about. We learned last week that the mature Christian is not measured by how talented you are or how smart you are. No, the mature Christian lives by the Spirit, which is where we get the word spiritual from. And in one, in, in one sense, all Christians are spiritual, and therefore the Cor- Corinthian Christians are spiritual because they have the Holy Spirit, but they are not all acting spiritually. They are not acting as people who live by the Spirit. They are not obedient, godly, grace-filled people. They're worldly. They're baby Christians. They're immature Christians. They're fleshly Christians. They live according to their sinful nature. They live according to the ethics of their, the present age, not the age to come. And they're infants, not in the good sense, like sometimes Jesus or Paul would talk about being childlike in your faith. And that's a good thing, that's innocent in your faith. Now they're like little babies in the sense that they are acting like beginners who've learnt nothing much about what it means to be a true disciple. So, as beginning Christians, Paul fed them milk, he says in verse 2, he, he fed them the foundational, crucial teaching of the Christian gospel, of Jesus Christ on the cross and resurrected and ascended. And, you know, he's not saying that that is actually not very important. He's saying that's probably the most imo- important food that they could be having, like the mother's milk is for the, for the child, which gives the crucial nutrients. But like a little kid who thinks they're, you know, like a seven-year-old who thinks they're mature enough to watch M-rated movies. That's kind of like what the Corinthian church are like. They think, oh, we're grown up and we should have the meaty teaching and we're not getting it. They're annoyed. So they have started to stray from the milk, the good milk, and they've started to wander and try and consume the, the teachings of the world, the wisdom of the world. They're argu- and so that's led them down the wrong track and that's why they're arguing over different leaders. They're not mature at all. They had received the Spirit, but they're not walking in the Spirit. So to help them grow into maturity and become truly spiritual, Paul does an interesting thing. He, he does something a little bit unexpected, and that is he, he, he moves into a, a teaching kind of moment, and he focuses on what it really means to be a good ministry leader. It's a bit of an unexpected turn, I think what he's doing is he's kind of... Well, he's addressing this issue of what it really means to be a a ministry leader because they're arguing over leaders. So he says, well, let's talk about Christian leadership and what it means to be a good ministry leader. But I think what he's actually doing underneath that is he's teaching them the gospel. He's helping them to understand the foundations of what it means to be a Christian. And you'll see how that works. Hopefully they'll stop having so many arguments once, once they understand Christian leadership... They'll calm down and they'll have unity again as a church. They'll draw closer to Christ and they'll start to grow up. And so Paul looks at three ideas about what good ministry leaders are in this extended passage. He says they're servants. He says they build with um, imperishable materials. And he says they have Jesus as their judge. They are servants, they build with imperishable materials, and they have Jesus as their judge. So let's look at point one. Good ministry leaders are servants, he says. Look at verse five. What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe. Now, the Corinthians saw Paul and Apollos as more than servants. They saw them as the kind of focus of their worship, almost. Not, Not quite that far, but... They'd gone and they'd put them on a pedestal and they were hero worshipping them. But they're just servants, God's servants and servants of the gospel. And in a sense, they're servants of the church, they're serving the church. This is just the language of Jesus here, who said, Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all and about himself he says jesus says for even the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many the corinthians came to believe in christ through the servant leadership of paul and also of apollos so paul and apollos were not the focus of their belief and shouldn't be but the facilitators of it of a process that led to their conversion And the formation formation of their church. Look at verse six. Paul says, "I planted the seed, and then Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow." And his illustration is about the church. It affirms the ministry of Paul and Apollos as equals. They don't just doing their thing, working, serving, ministry, but puts the focus onto God, whom they equally serve. And look at verse seven. Neither the one who plants or waters is anything, says Paul. They're not important, but only God is important. The workers will be rewarded by God. Their treasure is in heaven. So the Corinthians, as people, as worshippers, they don't belong to Paul. They don't belong to Apollos like they've been saying. They actually belong only to God. We are God's co-workers, says Paul. Paul. You are God's field. You are God's building, he says. It's verse 9, I love that imagery. You are the building. The church, the people are the church. If you ever hear someone say, the church isn't the building, you can say, no, the church is the building. Oh, sorry, anyway. So you can sum up Paul's opening argument like this. Everything is God's. The church is God's. The ministry is God's. Paul is God's. Apollos is God's. Therefore, nobody belongs to Paul and nobody belongs to Apollos. The only legitimate slogan is, we all belong to God. Now, for anyone who wants to go into leadership in the church, whether it be leading a church or any kind of leadership, we just saw examples of it before with the Mulherons, or it could be leadership in a role in, the, in, this, in, in this church here, you have to realise that the only right posture is that of a servant. If you have a big ego... If you are looking forward to having some kind of authority and and lording it over people, that's not what we're on about here. That's not what it means to be a Christian leader. Whether you're a pastor or a youth leader on the church council, whether you're a preacher or a teacher, you need to realize that church leadership is not about reveling in exercising power over others, it's about serving others. Now, this doesn't say anything about the organisational structure of a church or job descriptions or lines of authority because you can be the boss of a church, the boss of a church, and also be a servant at the same time. You can be at the top of the organisational chart and still be a servant. To say that the pastor is a servant or the community group leader is a servant, it's not saying anything about who does the dishes at the end of the meeting. It doesn't say anything about who cleans up the mess, or you know, does all the administration. You can be a servant leader and have different roles and be at different levels in the organizational chart, if you want to think in those terms. To say the children's ministry leader is a servant leader doesn't mean that all the children and parents nick off at the end of church and leave the leader to clean up. That has nothing to do with what it means to be a servant leader. We're not supposed to, as a congregation, go, well, they're a servant, so they have to serve me. That's not how it works. It's not a licence for us all to slack off as a community and be lazy and entitled. But if you are the person in charge of whatever it is, you must have the posture of the servant, putting others before yourself, working hard without seeking glory and being willing to do the unglamorous tasks willing to die to self, willing to go for 10 years to Cambodia. That's what we're talking about here. And I find personally the posture of a servant leadership, servant leadership, it's a freeing one. It's a joyful one. I serve Jesus Christ, who not only demonstrated servant leadership in his life, but died the death of a slave so that I could be set free. So in the knowledge of that, I serve with joy. I find it a happy thing to serve people. Another thing to think about, about what Paul is saying here, and this hopefully was a help for the Corinthian church, but we can think about it for ourselves, is that it it shows us that the church is not a co-op or it's not a shareholder organisation business in the sense that... uh, we don't all kind of own the church because we pay our tithe or whatever it is we have our role so therefore I'm a shareholder it's actually not true the church belongs to God and this can be hard to accept for people who have been around a particular church their whole life or have been you know in a leadership role for 50 years you know sometimes I I find I, I go to churches and I I hear, oh, yeah, the organist has been playing since 1962. So it's very hard for that organist to let go of the music ministry after that long. Or, I mean, it's faithful service. You can look at it from one angle and say, that's amazing faithful servant leadership to have committed for that long. But then sometimes that person can think, I own this. You know? We've all got to kind of have a posture of a servant and realise that God owns the church, not us. Well, the second thing that Paul says is that good ministry leaders build with imperishable materials. The main task of the servant minister is to build churches. Servant ministry leaders plant churches like Paul and servant ministry leaders nurture churches like Apollos. And Paul says in verse 8 that God rewards them according to their own labour. And so you might be thinking, what building materials should a, a servant ministry leader use? They should use... Imperishable materials. They should build with care. Verse ten, Paul says, they should build with Jesus Christ. When I was working with Mustard Schools Ministry years ago, we used to run all kinds of sessions with schools, and the chaplain and the principal would, you know, invite us in, and they'd say, "Can you speak on manhood? That's the topic. Manhood. School chaplains love those kind of weird topics." I so, say, okay, manhood, I've got no idea. But anyway, I'll give you... <laughs> I'll try But we, what we would say is, okay, we'll come in and talk on your topic, poverty or whatever it is, but we have to talk about Jesus. So we're not here just to kind of give some lame session on manhood. We're here to talk about Jesus. And so we'll talk about manhood, but we'll talk about Jesus. That was a non-negotiable. And our reason for having this was because we wanted to build mustard on imperishable materials. We wanted it to be a ministry that would last into eternity. We wanted to have Jesus Christ as our centre and our focus. We wanted the kids to hear about Jesus and come to faith. Paul says that there will come a day when each person's ministry will be tested by God, like in a, in a fire, like in a crucible. You'll see a picture on the front of the booklet. And God will reward them accordingly. And he says that when each ministry is put through that fire of the crucible, which, which purifies the impurities, removes all the impurities, the only ministries that will survive through that process are the ones built on imperishable materials, those built on Christ. The risk for the Christians in Corinth is that their church is being built on other things, on perishable materials, on ideas that are not of Jesus. They have shifted away from imperishable materials building materials of Jesus Christ on the cross. He's not saying that their salvation is necessarily at risk. He's not necessarily questioning their conversion here to Christ. He's just questioning their church. He's saying when the fire comes, the church will be exposed for following worldly wisdom and perhaps, if you're lucky, the ministry leaders will survive that process but the ministry won't and God will judge them accordingly We spend a lot of time as Christians wondering about our own salvation and how we will fare when we stand before Christ on Judgment Day. But in this message, we learn that Jesus Christ is returning not only to judge us individually, but also to judge our ministry. He will ask us to give an account of how we used our time, what we did in our ministries. It's not that our salvation is dependent on the faithfulness of our ministry, nevertheless Because God is in charge, he has a right to ask us what we did with what he gave us. As Jesus said, for everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. As we think about planning a second church, there'll be a temptation for us to build that church on worldly wisdom. And you'll think, why would we do that? But it's easy to do we could focus too much on the mainstream inner north culture and say we're going to really have a real strong focus on connecting with the inner north people. We could try and, you know, have this focus on pop psychology, on self-help, running lots of courses on how to live a flourishing life. And that could become the focus of our new church. We could put lots of energy into business managerial techniques so that we have efficiency and, you know, with the two and we run things really smoothly. Or we could put so much energy into the arts and that heaps of funding goes into an incredible music ministry or whatever. And and some of these ideas, they're good ideas, you know, not they're not all terrible, but if they become too much the focus, we risk making Jesus less of a focus. What really matters are our priorities. We must must prioritize the preaching of and the living out of the gospel. All other priorities, other ministries, other activities, they come second, third, and fourth, and fifth. Otherwise, at the final judgment, our church will be shown as being merely another club, and there are lots of Anglican churches that are really just clubs. We don't want that. A few weeks ago, a friend of mine, an old friend of mine, came to Merritt Creek just to pop in, and um, <clears throat> we were talking about different things, and I, and I asked her about her old church, which was a church in the inner north, which doesn't, it's not here anymore. It's, it's it's closed down. And I said to her, whatever happened to you, your old church? And she said, well, there were lots of complicated things that happened that caused it to close down. But at the end of the day, Jesus wasn't at the centre. It's possible. And this was a church that had so much promise and you know, uh, had a strong focus on mission when it, all, when it started out. And, and, this, and this person knew, knew really what was going on because she had been on staff there. We must see Paul's message as good news because actually he shows us what all we have to do. We don't have to build badly. We build the house on the rock. The rain can pour down, the streams can rise up and the winds can blow and beat against the house yet it won't fall because it has its foundation on the rock which is Jesus and it's going to survive that judgment. All those responsible for building this church, which is us, will receive our due reward from our Father in heaven. Paul says in verse 16, to drive home the point, he says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? And he's, put, he's talking to the group here. So he says, don't you know that yous, yous, use yourselves, that you're God's temple? When I was a teenager, this was the verse that was used for why you shouldn't smoke and take drugs and have sex outside of marriage. But that was a misreading of this verse. That's got nothing to do with it. Actually, what Paul is talking about is something else. He's saying that the people of God worshipping together, the Spirit is present there. You are God's temple. Before Jesus came, the Spirit was present in the temple in in Israel and then when Jesus came the Spirit of God dwelt in Jesus and then at Pentecost the Spirit entered the church so here today as we gather the Spirit of God is with us we gather and form that temple of God the Spirit is with us now and the Spirit is with us when we are not gathering on Sunday too when we gather in our Christian friends, and, and the Spirit travels with us on our own as well. But there's, in a sense, the Spirit is focused in a special way, in a unique way when we are gathering as the people of God. So we should never take the gathering of the church lightly. The Spirit dwells among us. We are the temple. And therefore, when people cause division in the church, they are causing division in God's holy temple. So you better see how serious this is. Paul says, it's so serious that if you destroy the temple, God will destroy you. It's a kind of a variation of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You destroy God's temple, God will destroy you. When Jesus walked into the temple and he saw people destroying the temple by doing dodgy money trading... And ripping off the poor, what did he do? He destroyed the temple. He threw the tables upside down and he got really angry. He said, This is not the way the temple is supposed to be used. And that's what God will do to you if you destroy the church. When God sees people gossiping and lying and slandering and causing division and arguing, God gets outraged. And this applies on the small scale when we're just white anting a church. You know, you know those people that sort of just spread little things here and there and try and undermine people and leadership or whatever in churches. But it also can happen on a big scale. You know, people who spread disunity in the church on social media or by um, playing church politics. You've got to be super careful. This is a huge warning. So, what's Paul saying? Paul's saying... Whether it's Paul, whether it's Apollos, whether it's Kephas, they might have status in the church, those apostles, because they planted so many churches, I know, but they're just simply servant ministers who build with imperishable materials. We are serving you, says Paul. We belong to you. All things are yours, he says in verse 21. And as the church, actually, you belong to Christ, and I have to say, Christ belongs to God, He says in verse 23. And that brings us to Paul's last point about good ministry leaders, which is that good ministry leaders have Jesus as their true judge. He says that while they should only consider he and Apollos as servants, and while they belong to them because he is Christ's servant for them, yet he's not actually accountable to them. Look at uh, chapter 4, verse 3 and 4. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges. The fact that they're questioning his leadership and his validity as an apostle means really nothing in real terms. Paul doesn't care that much because ultimately what matters is that soon Jesus is going to return and Jesus is going to judge him and his ministry and that's what really matters to Paul. And actually, Jesus is going to... judge the corinthian church as well and this is an important reminder for us who are thinking about ministry and who are worried about being judged by others so many people are at the end of the day it doesn't matter what people say over the years i've had all kinds of weird and funny kooky criticisms by different people of my ministry and some of them The criticisms have been totally legitimate and I've been completely at fault. And then at other times, I've heard things and people saying weird things. and I'm like, oh, well, people say weird things. You know, and this is just what happens. Either way, it doesn't really matter. What matters to me and what should matter to you is not what other people say. It's what Jesus thinks. The only judge of your ministry that matters is Jesus. He would judge you for how faithful you have been to the gospel and know that he would judge your critics as well. So to conclude, can you see how Paul is teaching the gospel by teaching Christian leadership? He's talking about the things that really matter. He's trying to steer them away from arguing over leaders. They can't be spiritual, walking in the spirit, and mature, and be caught up in these silly arguments. Now, not all churches are caught up in arguments over leadership. I don't think we are at the moment, not as far as I. I haven't heard anything. That's okay. Hopefully nothing starts. But churches can get caught up in other kinds of worldly arguments, arguments of doctrine, arguments over how money is spent, arguments over ministry strategy. Even some churches get in arguments over what songs they sing. If you want to be a mature and spiritual church, We need to have Jesus as our foundation. We need to see ourselves as servant leaders in whatever role we're in. We need to build with the imperishable materials of the gospel. And we need to build with an audience of one and that is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we pray that we are a spiritual church in the true sense, that we are walking in step with the Spirit. And we pray for a christ-like understanding of our church leadership we thank you that you do show us the way to build churches and that it's not as complicated as we think we have to just build with the imperishable material which is the gospel of jesus christ pray for our, our new church plant and other ministries that we're involved in that we can have our right priorities we can serve as servants And that we can do that all knowing that it's only you that really matters in terms of being our judge. Amen.